putting it all together. In this set of slides, uh, I'm going to try and show you how we have, how we're trying to put together the material that we've been learning in the course in order to tackle some of the case studies. Uh, this is, uh, strangely enough, the first of the series of online lectures that uh, you're able to download from the internet, uh, mainly because these are the first cases that I wanted to get you thinking about how to incorporate the material from different weeks together into a case. So you might want to look at uh, these examples a couple of times in order to become comfortable with the intuitions that you'll be using to tackle not only future cases in the course, but also as you go back and relook at the cases that we've already discussed to try and apply some of the tools and techniques that I'm showing here in the next set of slides as well as in the reintroduction to the course that you've probably already downloaded. So let's relook at the Georgia case uh, that we looked at in lecture and hopefully you had a chance to look at on your spare time. Uh, as you remember, one of the readings was a uh, assessment of Georgia's public expenditure and financial accountability framework. Uh, and the, the question on the syllabus was something to the effect of the Georgian uh, public expenditure and financial accountability framework is good, full stop, discuss. And that was basically the entire assignment. And so it's up to you to try and figure out, well, what part of this report is more interesting to us than other parts? Um, you'll remember we were talking about three ways of identifying the interesting part of any a budgetary uh, analysis or, or any analysis of financial statements. Uh, in this example, I was focusing very strongly on the thesis statement of the report. Uh, remember that uh, every work of art or study or science has some kind of thesis statement, uh, just as I'm hoping that the work you submit will also have a very strong and clear thesis statement. Uh, that goes not only for reports, but for PowerPoints, speeches you might give. It's that one main idea that really crystallizes or focuses the main message that you're trying to get across. And so like you, uh, the, the bank staff, bank and EU staff doing this analysis probably had one main idea that they wanted to focus their analysis around. Now, of course, uh, views can be different about what that thesis statement is, uh, as it's very rare you see in a report, uh, hello readers, my thesis statement is as follows. Uh, so in some ways you have to dig it out and differing analysts might indeed have placed different emphasis on a report uh, depending on their background. Uh, as for me, however, the thesis statement can be found in paragraph 8 of the main report, uh, not the introduction, so please be careful about that, um, where they say the quality of public finances is improving gradually in Georgia uh, with largest improvements in the level of tax revenue collection. So I know right away that, that the level of tax revenue collection is probably one area I want to look at, uh, which they signal as an important issue. Uh, however, further reforms are needed to improve transparency and accountability, uh, and also in terms of aligning public finances, et cetera, et cetera. 
So the other message that I took away from this is, well, we probably want to look at some important aspect of the transparency and accountability of this public expenditure framework. So just from that thesis statement, then I've, I've amassed two main areas to look at. The first, of course, is on the, the, the tax collection, the revenue side, and the other is the accountability and transparency stuff. Right, and just thumbing through the report, we see scorecards um, as the the bank staff tries to evaluate budget credibility, transparency, predictability, etc. And my attention is is immediately honed into this this issue of uh, spending what was what we wanted to spend, what the Georgian authorities expected or wanted to spend, and what they actually spent. Uh, in other in other words, aggregate expenditure outturn compared with original approved budget. So this, this was an area that was scored relatively low in the report. And just looking at that, that seems an area that I might want to look at. Uh, of course, just so I can get a, a broader feel for the issues involved in the report, uh, what I did and what you see in front of you is a is let's call it a dashboard or summary of the assessment that the bank did. What I did using Excel is that I took each of the, the report card scores from A to D minus and I converted them into numbers. And that way I could produce a bar chart that showed me very quickly and easily the, the, the overall trends in the score from the report. Because of course it's very difficult to sit there and keep in your mind all these different letters at one time. Uh, so by by taking qualitative data and transforming it into quantitative data, you actually find that it's much easier to grab the main ideas that are in any particular report. So you see in front of you the uh, the different marks on each of the criteria used in the report, and you see uh, the high scores and low scores, some of which are circled. Uh, and you'll remember from lectures that uh, one one key area of interest in a report like this are the extremes, namely areas where the budget and financial management system is doing particularly good or it's doing particularly poorly. And so it's those extremes that really highlight some of the issues that we want, might want to look at in the future. Carrying on then, uh, we said that there's two immediate areas of focus. Um, the, the thesis statement in terms of revenue collection and our analysis of extremes, which in my opinion was implied from the thesis statement. However, of course, you might have your own judgment, which is absolutely okay. Um, let's turn our attention to table one, which looks at the state budget of Georgia from 2003 to 2006, of course, as a percent of GDP. Uh, this tells us a little bit about the trends in revenue collection over that period. Uh, but remember, I was telling it's very difficult to look at an array of numbers and say, okay, well, that's the main implication of this, this array, this string, this collection of numbers. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I've been pushing us so strongly to use Excel is because you see the, the difference between those numbers above and the the, the graph below. I mean, when we look at the graph below and trends in uh, tax 
collection, in, uh, in non-tax collection, etc., we can see very clearly not only how these levels relate to each other, but also the rate of change or the growth or what we were calling sometimes the marginal differences in um, revenue collection. Okay, so on the left you see how these levels were changing over time. And to the right of that graph, of course, I've shown rates of change because it's, as we've been saying throughout the course, the rates of change or, or marginal change of any variable is much more interesting to us than the inframarginal levels. Uh, remember our vocabulary, inframarginal is, is the stock of revenue collection in the past. It's, it's the it's the accretion, if you will. It's, it's the layering or bunching up over time of what we've collected in the past compared with marginal changes, which only looks at that one extra step, that one additional unit. It's that marginal change which tells us about the kinds of decisions that we need to be taking in any one period of time. So we've plotted the, the, the changes in revenue collection for the various categories given in the reports, and we see this rather bizarre uh, trend of uh, capital revenue increasing and then decreasing very quickly over the period, as opposed to uh, other types of revenue which decrease slightly and then increase slightly throughout the period. Uh, these trends are somewhat opposites. Uh, they are negatively co-varied if we want to use some statistical vocabulary. And that seems rather an interesting trend to me. Uh, of course we have to be weary when we see these large jumps such as the one portrayed in on the the right hand side of this slide. Um, uh, there could be a number of reasons why there's this huge jump and normally we wouldn't only look at a two or three year, year period like this. Uh, of course, there could be data collection problems. There could be uh, there could be a, a one-off sale uh, of assets. Uh, there could be lots of things that account for this kind of short-term jump, which differs very much from the other revenue categories. Um, but remember that I was telling in class that that we tend to accept numbers as being true. Uh, we take the numbers as given. It's almost like a, a, a football match. You have to, to take the ball where it lies. Uh, and I remember when I started working on the data from Africa, uh, of course, the initial impression is to say, well, the data are all bad. We can't accept anything but then it doesn't help us move forward with our analysis. So it's kind of an un unwritten convention amongst economists and analysts to take the data face value initially, conduct the analysis, and only then step back and say, well, okay, assuming we can believe these data, this is the conclusion, but here's, here are the following reasons why this conclusion may not be valid given the possible problems with the data. Okay, so you'll certainly want to keep this in mind uh, about any data that you look at. Uh, I talked about Af my experience in Africa because that's where I learned 
this concept and, and some of the issues are most stark when looking at data from the developing world. Uh, but even looking at local budgets and, and um, small companies, uh, when you look at financial statements of companies as well that do not have audited financial statements, uh, you're going to run into the same kinds of problems. So hopefully you'll remember this piece of advice as you carry on forward in your careers. So we look at these rates of change and of course you see below uh, I've plotted the standard, uh, normalized standard deviations for each of these um, revenue categories. Uh, naturally we see that the uh, normalized standard deviation for capital revenue is much higher and again we have to be somewhat leery about these standard deviations because if we see a a series of data constantly going in one direction, constantly going up, constantly going down. Um, when you put that in the, the the formula, looking at the rate of change of each data point, okay, divided by the average, of course you're going to have a relatively high standard deviation. So you'll have a high standard deviation if the data are jumping up and down, but you'll also have a relatively high normalized standard deviation if the data are just going on in one direction. Okay, so you, you have to be uh, somewhat careful about this. Uh, this isn't a course in statistics, but those of you that are familiar with statistical techniques, what we would certainly do for trending trending data like this is that we would we would difference the data in other words we would we would subtract each year from the previous year so that the data look flatter okay that's called detrending by the way so we detrend the data which gives us a much clearer picture of what of these little jumps or the standard deviation in our data series uh, so that's what we would do here, but because this is mostly, this example is mostly for illustrative purposes, uh, and m at this stage I just want to get a rough feel for the data rather than present very scientifically accurately correct data, um, the data that you see in front of you is what you have is what you have. So remember, we were talking throughout the course about uh, the interpretation of data, uh, and we were talking about our four steps, okay? Define the question, use the model, confront with data, and then be extremely critical in your assessment of not only your analysis, but any other analysis that might have been conducted on the data. So we look at these data and we see this unusual trend in capital revenue as opposed to other types of revenue. And our first impression, of course, is to use models, to use economic models, to sit back and think, well, what might account for these trends in the data? What hypotheses might we uh, formulate, which then we can travel to to Blitzi and say, uh, look, Minister, uh, we saw the data, we've come up with some hypotheses, uh, please give us feedback. And that way we're in a much stronger position uh, to analyze the data than if we just kind of fished around Google and talked with experts and hoped for the best. Okay, So we have models, models of taxation that we've looked at in class, and we have to think, well, do these models of taxation help us to explain the data that we see in this particular report?
And the answer is, well, maybe yes and maybe no. Uh, we saw a large increase in capital revenue as opposed to other types of revenue. And so we think, well, what might account for this sudden increase in the taxation of capital as opposed to, let's say, labor or other types of tax? Um, we saw in the class that taxes are distortionary. Uh, anytime you impose a tax, it distorts uh, economic decisions. And hopefully you remember from class our discussion about distortion, how that works. Um, and we know that the more you tax something, uh, on the margin, the greater the distortion. So we might hypothesize then that the authorities at this point in time were switching taxation to other areas in order to reduce the overall distortion to the Georgian economy. That's one hypothesis, okay, which is implied by theory. The second mm, possible hypothesis might be that well, it's, we, we don't need to worry so much about the distortion. What we need to worry about more is the volatility, uh, the volatility of this taxation. Uh, we have a certain level of taxation of labor, of capital, uh, and so we take that as given, but then we see this large volatility in the collection of capital revenue. And so we worry much more about that volatility and its effect on distorting investment decisions then we worry about the distortionary effect in terms of reducing output and increasing overall prices. So we look at these data and we say, well, you know, uh, taxes distort, that's, that's troubling. We can, we can think about the distortionary effects as a possible motivation for policymaking. But what's more interesting to me is the volatility, particularly in this one category of revenue collection, and what impacts that might have on future methods of taxation. Uh, maybe the, the capital revenue uh, decreased significantly at the end of the period because it increased so significantly at the beginning of the period. And uh, policymakers were worried about the effects such volatility might have on the overall economy. Um, the third hypothesis, of course, is well that uh, revenue was revenues were increasing because prices were increasing. And as prices increased, the authorities were able to collect more taxes because, of course, taxes are assessed on a nominal basis rather than a real basis. Uh, just looking at the graph to the left, you see that as we impose taxes, uh, generally prices in some areas of the economy start to rise. Um, so in general, then, we look at these data and we, we're concerned about a possible triple distortion, okay, that, that that such taxation might have on the Georgian economy. Uh, of course, there's welfare losses, um, there's decreased expenditure as taxation reduces uh, disposable income, and there's this uncertainty or volatility in the taxation which might be uh, affecting, skewing, distorting investment and consumption decisions in the Georgian economy. Um, so we have so we have all these ideas from economic theory on one side, and we have this data on the other side. Okay, and we're trying to figure out how to play with the theories and how to play with the data in order to draw some kinds of conclusions. So we think, well, how do we organize 
all of these hypotheses or ideas that I've jotted down on this piece of paper next to me. And we look at the production function, which we've been using all term, that, well, output is a function of labor, capital, and knowledge. And we say, hmm, well, how maybe by looking at the structure of the economy, this will help us to understand the effects of taxation on this economy. Okay, And we know that taxation can only affect basically two inputs, labor, capital, and of course, the poss possibly the way that we innovate or gain knowledge. But let's not worry about that so much. Uh, let's worry about labor and capital. Uh, we, we saw that the volatility in capital revenue, it was very high. That was the thing that draw, that drew our attention. And so, of course, we think, well, maybe something's happening to Georgian capital. Maybe something's happening within Georgian capital markets. What have I learned from the course that I can link or tie in to this that might help me understand the, the way this capital revenue changes might be affecting the overall economy? And how does this help me to understand the motivation of Georgian policymakers at the time? Well, remember we said that volatility in capital is can be is affected by two main things. Okay, the demand for capital, so the supply for capital. Two main things. Uh, first, of course, is the return on capital. Okay, investors and savers will take decisions about forming capital based on how much money they get from the capital. Okay, the interest rates. And the other the other factor, of course, is our own time preference. Okay, how much are we willing to save today in order to consume something tomorrow? You remember in class I said that in theory these two rates should be identical. Uh, we should want to the we should want to save today to the extent that we get a benefit from that saving. Okay, so in theory the return on capital will equal what we what we want to that that capital to give us. Uh, in other words, I'm not going to forego eating uh, two apples today out of a hundred unless I can be sure that I'm going to get at least two apples worth of compensation in the future. Okay, So that's the way we can think about time preference relative to uh, changing returns on capital. But let's step back a bit. I mean, all that's very kind of academic and theoretical and uh, even maybe a bit complicated. The only thing to really think about now is, does capital revenue, do capital revenue changes in Georgia result from changes either in their return on capital or changes in Georgians' time preference? So that's kind of the main idea we've really got to grab in our heads and play with the data in order to think about. Um, admonishing you at the same time to remember that we're looking at a relatively large change in capital revenue, yet, as you saw from the analyses of levels, this the, the overall revenue collected uh, in this particular revenue item is still very low. So it's possible that we've misdirected our attention. We're looking at something which changed a lot, but which has a relatively low weight in the overall revenue envelope uh, collected by uh, by the Georgian tax authorities at this time, mm, it might be relevant, it might be not, 
But of course, we continue to analyze and think about it just as a way of satisfying our curiosity. So you remember that our case analysis, it, think of it as a, uh, a, a, a blank ETSL, okay? It's a blank uh, drawing board that we use in order to apply the theories that we're learning in the course. Uh, so far, we've looked at some data from Georgia. We've looked at what are no more than theoretical speculations right now. But through your speculating again and again, you're going to become more familiar with the theories. You're going to become more comfortable with them. As you apply them, you're going to say, well, I don't understand how that works. And maybe you'll Skype me, and I'll give some friendly advice, and it will become clear. Okay, so in the same way, when we look at this slide, we're thinking about the effects of the ISLM model in this very particular uh, area of the budget. Okay, again, it's a bit of a stretch, I accept, that we're trying to use very macro level models on a very small revenue category, but it's this kind of playing with the models that I hope will help to develop your intuitions about how to apply the models in other cases. So we were looking at uh, capital revenue. We made some hypotheses about how capital might be might be being affected at this time, and we think, well, what models do we know about uh, the rates of return to capital. Well, the ISLM model clearly tells us something about the rates of return to capital, namely the real interest rate. It also tells us something about output. So we think, well, we know about capital, uh, the taxes on capital, which then generate this revenue for the government. What effect might this be having on the overall economy? Uh, you remember that taxation in theory, in general, holding everything else constant, should shift back the IS curve. In other words, um, there's less economic activity in this economy because the government is, is taking some of the resources, quite possibly to spend somewhere else. Okay? Um, the analysis, of course, is somewhat complex, but in order to keep this as simple as possible, let's assume the government takes the, this revenue and just uh, hides it under their bed. Okay, So we're not worried about changes in tax collection as well as spending later. We just want to think, well, what's going to be the effect on the economy of this tax as soon as they take it? Um, well, we know that uh, real interest rates start to rise, and we think, hmm, what, what effect could that have on various uh, interest groups, institutions, parts of the Georgian economy? Uh, remember, we looked at the production function, and we said, well, capital and labor, those are two analytical groups that might be interesting to look at. Uh, we look at capital, holders of capital, investors, uh, and we see, well, maybe the maybe capitalists are helped because there's higher rates of return on capital. Okay, um, But remember that, that as the interest rate goes up, it makes uh, lending more expensive. Okay, So you've got two groups of people which arrive at some equilibrium, 
Okay, people are willing to take loans, but at higher rates of interest. You have uh, producers who need to produce much more productively in order to give out this higher rate of return. And overall, you see, well, as far as capitalists are concerned, there's probably some overall benefit of seeing higher prices to capital. Uh, remember that the interest rate is simply the price of capital. Uh, now, let's think about labor. Well, before we look at any other part of the budget, we have to make a supposition. Are workers more happy or less happy? Well, if we look at this ISLM curve, we see that overall economic activity has fallen. Uh, workers are they're in a less vibrant economy. Uh, they could possibly be earning uh, lower wages uh, because people aren't buying and selling as much. Uh, so we might hypothesize that overall laborers are not very happy. Again, realizing that this is the most simple kind of analysis. The, this is, these are just the first thoughts as we carry on in this analysis. Um, and then we think about, well, what's government's view on this particular policy? Um, they want to uh, get more revenue from capital. They want to tax capital in order to collect this revenue. Uh, of course, they want to spend as much as possible. We assume that governments are uh, self-seeking, uh, that they want to maximize their overall spending power. They want to max uh, government officials want to maximize their overall territory, terrain, sphere of influence. Uh, and therefore, we might assume if we take this uh, very st stylized perspective that government workers in general would have an incentive to collect these taxes and keep collecting these taxes. Okay? But remembering, of course, the various mm, political tensions or political games that are occurring in a government. Uh, we talked very briefly about some of the models presented uh, by Drazen, which might suggest that this analysis is more complicated than just the, the, the evil government trying to take as many resources as possible. And so when we see this conflict or this game between different factions inside the government, we realize, well, that might be one of the reasons for this volatility. So we have a number of conjectures so far, none of which, of course, we would put down on paper, none of which we would present to anybody. But I want to show you the kind of stream of consciousness approach to analyzing these problems so that when you do it, um, you'll feel much more comfortable with this draft analysis that you're doing. So we continue with, with the case of increasing capital revenues in Georgia. Uh, we have a number of conjectures, and so of course our natural curiosity wants us to di wants pushes us to dig a bit more deeply. And we look at the, we look further at the table, and we say, hmm. Well, I wonder if there's a relationship between the amount of money that we're collecting on capital and the amount of money that we're spending on capital. In other words, are we trying to get money from uh, this particular area of the economy so that we can spend exactly on the similar types of goods and assets, or are we using this money for something else? So, of, of course, we 
draw a graph. Uh, pictures tell us a thousand words. And we see that throughout this period, the trend in both capital uh, revenue and capital expenditure was increasing in Georgia. Of course, we can't prove it, but we look at this, this correlation and we say, hmm, well, maybe they were collecting uh, this revenue in order to increase uh, capital, capital investment. Uh, of course, we can't be sure, but looking at the data, that's one possible hypothesis. Uh, so, so given these data, we, we, our natural curiosity leads us to look at the types of investments that, that uh, the Georgian authorities were engaging in at the time. And again, a, a chart is worth a thousand words. So we very quickly put a chart down uh, related to spending in various categories. And we see that over the period, there was a huge increase in defense spending and much lower increases in social security and agriculture. So we see this increase in revenue. We see an increase in ex overall expenditure. And that leads us to question, well, what exactly was the, the Georgian government spending at the time? Uh, we looked at the various expenditure categories, and we see uh, the graph that you basically see below suggesting uh, particular budget priorities for the Georgian government at the time, uh, which of course leads me to I hypothesize about a government strategy in the upcoming slides. But for now, the, the main message I think uh, to take away from the, the graph on the bottom is that, look, we see uh, increased spending in some categories, we see decreased spending in some categories. This tells us something about government priorities. This tells us something about the value to Georgians during that time period of having extra tanks versus having more teachers, of having more hospitals as opposed to having more museums. Okay? So the data to this extent speak much more loudly than all possible political pronouncements, which of course will be of extreme interest to those of you who are political scientists and international relations experts. So let's see if we can tie all this together. Uh, as you saw in the previous slides, we looked at the rates of change in revenue collection in particular categories, uh, particularly ch uh, the rate of change of capital revenue attracted our attention the most. And we saw that overall increases in expenditure translated to changes in various expenditure categories. Uh, defense and education are two prime examples. And we had to assume or hypothesize that overall spending in, uh, in defense, increases in defense, uh, probably translated to increases in capital expenditure in defense. And we made that assumption because we saw increasing trends both on the capital revenue side and the capital expenditure side. Uh, the report doesn't give a breakdown analysis of changes in capital expenditure over the period. Therefore, we have to be very clear and say, uh, look, we don't have data about uh, capital expenditure in various categories, but we do have data about overall expenditure in various categories. And 
if we assume this correlation between capital revenue and capital expenditure holds, then we can therefore deduce that these rates of change in defense, education, health, in part translate to changes in capital expenditure. Okay, it could be completely false, but that's not really the purpose of this exercise. Uh, of course, if you were doing this exercise for money professionally, you would uh, dig much more deeply than we are here. Uh, you would go and collect the relevant data. But because we are only working from this one document, we have to make certain assumptions, certain suppositions. And as long as you're clear about those suppositions, then, then it's quite okay. Uh, the analysis has been done logically, and you've had plenty of chance to use the various models that you've been picking up in the course. Um, so we look at these, again, we look at these data, and we think, well, what do these changes in expenditure tell us? From the last slide, you remember we said, well, they represent um, Georgians' uh, revealed preferences for consuming uh, defense uh, services, goods and services, as opposed to educational goods and services. Okay, So that's part of the story. And then we think, well, if there are changes in government expenditure in each of these areas, what is probably happening to the rates of return in Georgian society uh, for each of these types of activities? Let's take uh, education because it's much less controversial than defense at this time. Okay, uh, we see government increasing uh, increasing resources to the education sector, and there's just thinking logically. There's really only two possibilities. Um, I mean, in theory, there's three possibilities, but let's look at the two most interesting possibilities. Either returns to education at this time are increasing, and that's the reason why they spent more money, or returns to education at the time are decreasing, and that's why they spent more money. Okay? Um, returns to education might be increasing in the time period because uh, of as the society is growing and new educational techniques are coming in into Georgia, uh, students are being educated better, or the economy is becoming more productive and therefore having uh, a more educated workforce could contribute to more economic growth. Uh, there's a number of reasons why this might be happening, but I think the main, the main part of this exercise is to take this problem and tear it apart into its analytical bits. You remember that this is called analysis. Okay, Analysis is taking a problem and breaking it up as opposed to synthesis which is taking various bits and putting putting those bits together like we've, like we've been doing with the readings throughout this course. So what's most interesting for me in your analysis is your ability to look at uh, rates of change in expenditure, let's say in education, and come up with some interesting hypotheses that can be tested in the future. And so in this case, we can make certain assumptions about the increased resourcing to education, and we can say, well, look, this is happening because uh, the returns to education were improving in the, during the time period, which is a good thing, okay, and that has one particular set of policy consequences 
or we can say, uh, look, returns to education were getting much worse during the time period, and therefore government had to increase its spending just to maintain a certain level of educational attainment. And it's clear that if this was going on in that time period, then there's completely different and opposite policy implications. But the, I think the main message that I want you to take away from this is that simply by looking at one number, it's, it's very fertile ground for making all kinds of suppositions and predictions, which then we can go away and analyze more fully. Let's turn our attention now to the other uh, part of of the, the analysis that we're conducting, which is this analysis of accountability of the budget. Okay, And remember, we were looking very specifically at the extent to which what the government, what the Georgian government authorities plan to spend, did that relate to what they actually expended, uh, spent. Okay, um, You see on the slide in front of you, Again, the scores, just to remind us why we're doing this part of the exercise. And below that, you see a couple of analyses. Uh, these, ana the, these charts were very quick to make in Excel. It took about 45 seconds to make each chart. And in my opinion, it tells us a world of things about uh, the way the Georgian government planned its expenditure at that time. and as opposed to actually executed this expenditure. Uh, you see in the chart roughly in the middle uh, what I've labeled excess tax collection in Georgia. And what, what that means is the amount of revenue collected by the, the Ministry of Finance relative to what it predicted or said it would collect during that same time period. And of course, differences are very interesting to us, and we see that that excess tax collection was roughly the same uh, between 2004 and 2005, but then there was a much larger diversion uh, in such excess collection uh, between non-tax revenue, tax revenue, and capital revenue between 2005 and 2006. So we can deduce that something probably happened between 2005 and 2006. Uh, of course, we can't know what only by looking at these data, but we do know that somehow uh, non-tax revenue collection went out into the various Georgian cities and they collected much more than they thought they would. Uh, whereas in these tax assessors went out uh, to assess uh, taxes on capital, and they they collected much less than they thought they would relative to uh, this non-tax revenue. And so that, of course, leads us to a number of suppositions that are the models we've been learning in this course can help us think through. Uh, let's look at the other chart on this slide, uh, which is excess expenditure uh, from the highest to the lowest categories. So what this shows is the amount of money Georgian authorities were expecting to spend on defense, on what's that, Georgian Science Academy, uh, state security, as opposed to what they planned on spending. And what we see is that there were huge increases in uh, defense, uh, what 
Also what caught my eye was state security. There were decreases, in other words, uh, on the other side of the chart. In other words, they ended up spending less than they thought they would spend uh, on the, the, the national audit chamber courts um, of institute, Supreme Audit Institution. Uh, and of course the other categories that you see there. So these two graphs together, they, they tell me something kind of interesting. I, I mean, we know that throughout this term, um, expenditure priorities somehow changed very quickly. We also see throughout the same term that revenue collection priorities changed. Uh, in other words, they were collecting more than they thought they would collect, and they were spending much more than they thought they would spend on particular categories. So, of course, this is only a correlation, and we have to hypothesize about the causation. Um, and the obvious hypothesis, which might be entirely wrong, but you can't ignore this hypothesis, is that uh, Georgian government at the time had to spend a lot of money on defense, and they had to shake down various groups of people in order to collect the revenue in order to pay for defense. Um, defense and security writ large. We also see an increase in state security. So we know that something was probably happening in Georgia at that time. Uh, we don't know what, because uh, maybe we're, we're not Georgian specialists, but we do know that there was some serious concern in Georgia at the time for its, the, its uh, exterior defense as well as interior defense, and we know that it probably had to shake down different groups of people more than, more than they thought they would in order to collect the resources to pay for these expenditure categories. So that's one possible hypothesis about the data that we see in front of us. So in some ways this slide simply summarizes the story that we've been piecing together over the previous slides. Um, we're almost in a kind of Umberto Eco style of data analysis. We've been trying to fit a story onto data which of course is very perilous because our story might not correspond to the, the very simplistic analysis of the data that we've done so far. But remember that, that it's our job to try and interpret and form hypotheses and then go and test these hypotheses. So what's the story from the Georgian budget so far? Um, it's possible that the Georgian government was paying for defense this time, uh, paying rather excessively, particularly compared to what it planned to pay at that time. And we can deduce that it was possibly robbing from two Peters to pay Paul. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, Paul, in this case, is defense. Um, first of all, it was probably taking resources from uh, other agencies. Remember, we saw that s certain agencies were spending less than they than, than was anticipated and we saw a correlating increase in expenditure in defense. Uh, of course we can't prove it and it's something that we have to investigate more fully, but it could be that the increase in the resources to pay for defense goods and services was provided by reducing expenditure in other categories. 
Okay, that's one possibility. The other possibility, of course, is that we were hitting up uh, store owners and investors and other segments of the society more than we were expecting to in order to collect the revenues to pay for defense. Okay, that's another possibility. Uh, of course, keeping in mind that other options are during this period that Georgia was uh, increasing its debt burden, uh, and of course remembering that when we're drawing resources from the private sector, that could possibly reduce overall investment and therefore growth in the future. Okay? So those are all suppositions that have been given to us by the theory that we've been learning over the term. Uh, but they're, if not useful suppositions, they're at least interesting suppositions, which help us to play a bit more with the models and with the material that we've been learning throughout the course. Now the question is, well we have all of this, uh, these models and we have some of this data, how do I fit in all of the reading that I've been doing throughout the term? Uh, roughly each week I've had to read about 40 or 50 pages from the syllabus and it's very difficult for me to see how a discussion of fiscal administration given by Mike Sell for the U.S., how that relates to Georgia. And, of course, there's two ways to read the, the material in the course, the right way and the wrong way. Now, the wrong way is to open the book on page two and, hmm, that's so interesting, yes, and then turn to page three and take notes on what's being said and then turn to page four. Um, you're going to lose all your time if you do this. Instead, the better approach is to try and look at the Georgia case and then use this process of synthesis that, that I was talking about earlier. Remember, synthesis is taking different pieces of a problem and trying to put them together. So let's go through now, using the textbook, an exercise in synthesis to try and see how we can use some of the material from the textbook in order to provide us insights on the Georgia case study. So I open the textbook and I'm looking basically at the chapter headings and the chapter subheadings, uh, trying to find material that might help me to understand some of the trends I'm seeing in the Georgia case study. Uh, so I look at chapter two, the logic of the budget process, and I'm looking, looking, and I see something about the budget cycle. And so naturally I'm letting my questions, my curiosity guide my analysis. And I'm wondering, well, is there something about the, the budget cycle that might explain uh, the, the, the budget's performance in terms of this large difference between what they expected to spend and what they actually spent? And so then we turn past page 51 in the textbook and we read a little bit about the budget cycle and then we realize, hmm, well, you know, they probably plan uh, at least one year or more into the future and any change that's happening at the time won't be reflected in the budget until later. And if that change is big enough, then we would expect a very large difference between the amount that we expected to spend and the amount that we actually did spend. So we say, hmm, okay, I see how that works in the U.S. I see, by analogy, how that might work in Georgia. Uh, we carry on down this uh, section and we look at this, we, we see on page 67 something about legislative consideration. 
And so we, hmm, maybe we open the textbook and we see, oh, well, you know, a bunch of uh, members of Congress, in the case of the U.S., uh, they have to they have to look at these numbers and then agree to them or change them or do whatever it is that um, members of a legislative body do. And we say, hmm, well, how does that, how does that affect the, the Georgian budget? And we arrive at the very obvious conclusion that, well, the budget's a very politicized document and maybe uh, they couldn't uh, get agreement to spend everything they wanted to spend on everything because interests inside this legislative body are so diverse. Okay, that's that's entirely uh, valid a conclusion, and of course it's it's the most simplistic one. And so then we we stop and we scratch our head a little bit and we think, well, okay, fair enough, but why didn't why didn't the members of parliament just simply vote for a higher budget? Uh, I mean, maybe they knew something was going to happen vis-a-vis uh, -vis another country. We don't know what country that is because we're not Georgian experts. Um, but we can't. Uh, we can suppose that they probably knew something was coming. Why not just tax more and have the funds available for spending? And so we say, hmm, well, what else in the syllabus might be interesting to help us understand the answer to this question? And we see Drazen. Uh, we might fish around on the internet, and it's pretty clear after a little while thinking, we say, we, we deduce that there was some political process that prevented the Supreme Constitutive Body from deciding on drawing more resources from the economy in order to pay for these contingencies. Okay, And several of the models of politics we've learned from this course, but even more importantly from other courses, will certainly help us to understand the internal dynamic in the legislative body. Uh, so that's why I keep encouraging us to use the, the other material from our courses, particularly courses in politics, because they tell us many useful things about why we spend what we spend and why Georgians spend what they spend. So we continue looking in the textbook. Okay, that was chapter two. That, that was all that inspired me at the time. Let's look to chapter four. Well, you know, I see something. Hmm, that's an interesting phrase, the phantom balance. It reminds me of a Star Wars movie. So you say, I wonder if that has anything to do with anything. So you open the textbook, you flip to this phantom balance, and you see that it, it's a description of a, a parliament or congress's incentive to make expenditure look like it's balancing out with revenue collection, even though it doesn't. Okay, We need to spend lots of money on something, but we have this very real political constraint that we have to look like we're acting prudently, that we're voting prudently on a prudent budget. So what do we do? Well, we show a budget that looks like it's relatively well balanced, that it's relatively conservative, but yet we spend on things that need need to be spent on. Um, and we think, okay, well, I understand how that works in the U.S. Does that apply to the Georgian case? And the answer is, well, huh. You know, they said they were going to spend this amount of money. They ended up spending much more on something. Might this whole phantom balance explanation have any power in helping us understand what was going on in the Georgian parliament at the time? And the answer is, well, quite possibly. At least it gives us a useful hypothesis from which we can then proceed as we collect more data.
Okay. Um, particularly as you start out in the subject, you might find it useful to go section by section through the textbook, through the various readings, of, and just look for things that might be useful, if not interesting. Because um, the last thing you want to do is get so bored that you close everything and that, that you don't learn. So one of the main purposes of teaching in this way is to keep your motivation relatively up, uh, particularly for a subject that many consider very dry. Uh, so you'll go through the cases first, uh, you'll look at the data, you'll come up with interesting questions, at least interesting to you, and hopefully other people. Then you'll, on the same desk, you'll flip open the textbook or the readings, and you'll just go down and say, well, hmm, I wonder if I can use my synthetic thinking skills to link this one idea from the reading to the case that I'm looking at at the time. Now remember that um, your skimming or your search for useful material to help you in the case study, it's not going to be just random or you're not just going to go down from chapter to chapter. Of course, you're going to be scanning for things that are more that you think might be more useful to you for the particular case that you're looking at. Uh, so throughout this series of slides, we've been looking at uh, capital revenue in Georgia, and we've made particular assumptions about the way that might affect capital expenditure. Uh, we look at the textbook and we think, well, uh, the case is about capital stuff. Okay, because maybe I'm not so far advanced in the topic yet that I know where everything fits in. But you know that you've been talking a bit about capital, and as you flip through the textbook, you see this chapter 6 that talks about capital, capital budgeting. Um, budgeting, you don't, maybe you don't know exactly what that is now, but you do see this word capital, and you know, well, budgeting, that probably has to do with budget. Uh, that might be useful to me. So you flip open the book, and you look at how the US government does capital budgeting, how it allocates resources in order to maintain and improve the capital stock, okay, for various public goods and services that various government agencies are providing. Uh, and it could even be that, that you found this chapter six before we formally came to it uh, on the syllabus. That's absolutely fine. Uh, the syllabus is not, it, it, it's a guide. It's not, uh, it's not like a roller coaster. It's not a track that you have to follow religiously. Uh, so you open chapter six, you see some of these concepts related to the time value of money, uh, how to do cost benefit analysis, and you might play with those ideas a little bit in the Georgia case. Um, of course, you, you've not mastered the entire chapter, but more importantly, you've had a first look at some concepts that take years to master. Um, a time value of money. I remember when I was studying this topic uh, during the first lecture, okay, I, I understood passively what the professor was telling me, but it actually took me years to internalize this concept so that I could just apply it without thinking. So in the same way, you're getting a first familiarity, or, or in many cases, a second or third familiarity with this concept that you will continue to use throughout the course and hopefully throughout your life. Let us move now from the Eurasian continent to North America uh, as we move from the Georgia case study to the case study of the U.S. budget. Um, 
You you remember from the syllabus that uh, the questions about the U.S. budget were just as vague as all the other questions. Uh, the U.S. budget is good. Discuss. Because as you see from the popular discourse, that's exactly the kinds of questions that these various think tank analysts are answering. Um, basically, they receive the budget and they, they have to write something. And so they're answering the question, well, is the budget good or bad? And your first look in the budget, you see all this analysis, all these charts, all these numbers, and you say, wow, I, I, I don't know what to do. Where do I start? And you remember from, from the course, well, there's three ways to start. There's, you look at the thesis statement, you look at extremes, or you look at something that seems interesting. Because hopefully those little interesting tidbits will tell you something about the more general thing that it comes from. Namely, uh, patterns and expenditure at the micro level might tell us something about what's going on in the entire budget. So let's, let's take the first case and try and identify the thesis statement from the U.S. budget. What's that one organizing principle that the president's office had in mind as they tried to wrestle with this extremely complex beast of public expenditure and uh, the need to pay for such expenditure? Well, you look through the budget a little bit, you look for paragraphs that might contain a main idea, a thesis statement. Uh, after about 20 seconds of looking around, you see something that looks promising on page 3. Uh, finally, while we have inherited a record budget deficits and needed to pass a massive recovery, blah, 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 you kind of skim a bit and you see, well, trillion, the trillions of dollars of debt that we inherited, the rising costs of health care, and the growing obligations of Social Security, full stop. And you say, hmm, well, those look like the three main areas that the president wants to focus on in this budget. Mm, I wonder if that tells us something interesting. Now, you might, you might have misidentified the thesis statement at this point. That's not very concerning to us right now because as you continue with your natural curiosity, if these three areas don't look like the main idea of this budget, You'll see it soon enough, and then you'll go back and try and identify the quote-unquote real thesis statement. But for now, this is the thesis statement that, that, that you found, that you've hypothesized about, and your natural curiosity will lead you to look a bit more at these three spending areas. So you've got this big budget in front of you. You've identified the three, the three main areas you think that really tell the story about this budget and you flip through the, the table of contents and you see spending by various departments. Okay, you found the three departments, a Department of Health and Human Services, Department of the Treasury, uh, which probably deals with debt issues, and Social Security Administration. Now you flip open the debt and you only see one table that, that uh, is shown on this slide from the Department of Treasury and it shows uh, roughly discretionary budget authority uh, of the overall department in billions of dollars. And you kind of cock your head a bit and you say, hmm, well that, that doesn't look very interesting to me, uh, which you wouldn't expect it would anyway. And you see lots and lots of text. And you look at the text and you say, wow, this is kind of boring. I wonder what I do now. And, and, and even how do I know that this text is correct? Um, maybe they're telling me something that's not true. 
So the first, re your first reaction is uh, almost certainly my same first reaction, and that is to, to try and look at the summary tables, to try and find actual data that's much less subjective. So you go to the bottom of the list and you see something that looks like uh, summary tables, charts, and you say, hmm, well that's probably what I want to look at. So let's look at it. Okay, so you're flipping to the back of the budget and suddenly you hear my voice echo in your mind. Uh, <laughs> it's a scary proposition, I know, but still. You remember my voice telling you, well, before you look at the data, think about things in theory. It's theory that guides us. It's theory that will show us what is more interesting from this mass of numbers that we're going to be, that, that's going to be plonked in front of our face soon. Um, and so you remember from class a little bit uh, of our discussion of uh, what we were calling general e equilibrium. You remember me saying, well, uh, in theory, we want to be just as happy consuming something at the margin as we do producing something on the margin, as we do collecting the money to pay for that thing at the margin. Now, what does that mean? Um, remembering back to the lecture, remember me saying, well, when we, let's think about expenditure in health and education and all of these different government services. We know that we're as happy as possible when we're just as happy to listen to the next hour of educational lectures as we are to spend an hour receiving some medical treatment, or which is being just as happy as walking through the forest for an hour. Okay, so how do we know that this is the best the best allocation of expenditure? Well, if the marginal utility from these various activities isn't the same, then we would change our, our consumption. Now, what do I mean by that? Okay, let's imagine that um, we very much need uh, medical attention, uh, but we don't need more lectures in economics. So what are we going to do? We, we have this very high marginal utility for receiving hospital treatments, and we don't have so far very high uh, marginal happiness or utility in listening to more economics lectures. Well, naturally we're going to prefer to shift our time out of listening to lectures like these, and we're going to rush to the hospital. Okay, and we're going to sit down in front of the doctor and we're going to say, doctor, can you please treat us? He treats us. Uh, we're happier. We're happier. Okay, and the next, the next hour that we spend in treatment will be progressively less happy. Remember we were talking about diminishing marginal utility. Is that the more we consume of something, at least in theory, we're going to be less happy about it. Okay, uh, the doctor healed most of what was ailing us. Maybe we still have a little itch on our elbow, um, but we also have this intellectual itch as well for economic theory. Oh, that was beautiful. Uh, so what we'll want to do is we'll want to shift our consumption to those areas where we're going to be more happy. And we're going to keep shifting both as individuals and as a society until we're just as happy on the margin consuming uh, lectures in economics as we are getting hospital treatments, as we are walking through the forests of our great and glorious nation, as we are doing something else that government spends money on. 
Okay, so remember that one condition for, for public expenditure is that we allocate resources such that the marginal utility of expenditure on each of those things is equal. We are just as happy to, to on the margin, to spend one extra dollar protecting uh, pets, uh, pets' rights, uh, defendants' rights, as we are spending money on uh, bus trips to the inner city. Okay, so that's this whole marginal utility thing. Now, looking at the slide, we see this uh, happy waving farmer, and what he's trying to tell us is that. Well, we know that we're going to be as productive and happy and output maximizing a society as possible when the marginal output from various productive activities is the same. Okay, now what does that mean? Uh, let's imagine that we are uh, investing to produce, um, I don't know, well, well, let's think of something, uh, to produce new technologies, research and development. Okay, and how much are we going to spend on this research and development? Well, we spend the first million and we get lots of innovations that make our life better. And then we spend the next million and we get, well, not, not as many. We still get some, but we don't get as many as we got for the first million that we spent. Okay. Then we spend a bit more money and our marginal productivity of this expenditure, of this investment, it's, it's decreasing over time. And it's the same with building bridges. Uh, the first bridge we built really made our lives more productive, better. It increased our earning power because we could uh, trade with other parts of the greater New York area. Uh, we built a second bridge, and the, the marginal revenue product, the marginal return, the extra profit that we got from that investment, it's starting to go down a bit. Yeah? And what we'll want to do as a government, and as an individual, by the way, or a company, is that we will want to continue to invest in something until we're just we're getting just as much profit on the margin as if we invest in something else. Uh, think about your own education. Uh, so you get a certain amount of uh, years of schooling, and then you have to decide whether to buy a house or not. Well, are you going to buy a house or are you going to get a PhD? And maybe you're not uh, as economic as The Economist, but somewhere in the back of your mind you're thinking, well, I have to trade off those extra three or four years getting this doctorate against the returns I would get if I invested in the house or, or, or the stock market. And so what you're really doing is, is you're looking at the marginal return, the marginal product, what, what we know more broadly is the marginal revenue product, you're looking at the, that next one unit of investment and how much that will bring back to you, how much that will return to you. Okay? And what you're going to do is you're going to invest in different things in your life to the point where all these rates of return are roughly the same. And similarly, you're going to be consuming on food and leisure and different areas of your life such that your overall happiness is the same. And of course, the, those you're going to invest in education and stock market and houses only to the point where what you're getting from those investment activities will give you this uh, 
ideal level of happiness in consuming walks and watching movies and uh, hearing Beethoven concerts. Okay, so that the marginal revenue you're getting from your various investments and productive activities will be equaling the the amount of happiness, the marginal utility you're getting from various types of consumption. Now it works the same for companies and it works the same for governments. So that the government in theory is going to invest in all kinds of productive things in each in each category only to the point where it gets a particular marginal utility. It, it, welfare in general is maximized for the society that it's serving, at least in theory. And we'll discuss lots of reasons why that's not true throughout the course. Now we think about the, the, the level of taxation in this economy. I mean that, that's what we're really interested in here. And we think, well, how much should we tax people in order to get this perfect level of happiness and this perfect level of productivity? And the answer, of course, is that the amount of, of money we take from people has to be exactly equal to the benefit that we're giving to people. Um, let's think about a concrete example. Okay, uh, The government wants to tax, think that you're Robinson Crusoe on an island, and uh, you, you realize that as individuals you cannot uh, build huts and collect coconuts and do all the lovely things that you need to do as a society. So you say, well, uh, dear colleagues, it is time to, to, to put in a tax. And the question is, well, how much are you going to tax yourself and your other colleagues? And so you decide uh, to tax, to take a, a little bit of what each person is uh, making each day. Okay, if people are growing coconuts, you're going to take a little bit of their coconuts. Uh, if they're growing corn, you're going to take a little bit of their corn. And you're going to reinvest that in stuff that makes the community happier. Now, it's clear that if your public investments are are making everyone really happy and they're really productive and everyone is is prospering from these investments, you're going to say, well, we should do this a bit more. We should tax a bit more. We should tax and spend a bit more. And therefore, on the margin, you're going to increase the tax and you're going to keep increasing the amount of resources you're pulling out of the economy until you reach a point where that exactly equals its productivity in helping the economy produce more and it's equal to the the, the trade-off and happiness that, that uh, that's occurring in this little Robinson Crusoe society. In other words, um, people are at the margin going to be just as happy to give up um, buying another iPod in their private consumption in order to pay these extra tax dollars to receive, uh, let's say, a new technological innovation for opening coconuts. Okay, so marginal utility has to balance out with marginal productivity, the amount of output that we get, and the tax that we assess from people in this economy has to exactly balance those two conditions. We're taking exactly on the margin the same amount that we have to be increasing the productive power of our economy and the overall happiness of the people in that economy. Now, whew, wow, that was extremely abstract. You're, you're looking at this slide and you're thinking, well, what does that have to do with the president's budget? And what the, what the president is actually telling 
though not in all these fancy, fancy words, is that at present the marginal cost of our expenditure, it exceeds the marginal revenue. Uh, the entitlements and the debt, they're costing us too much relative to what we're getting for them. Okay, And that we're paying too little in taxes in order to receive the benefits that we're collecting. So the benefits are coming from somewhere. They're probably not coming from productive investment. And therefore, we're over-consuming. Okay, we're taxing too little uh, in order to get what we want. Okay, and we're, we're spending too much in order to have too high a, a, a level of happiness given uh, the productive things in our society. So that's, that's roughly the presence message translated into the various concepts and models we've been learning throughout this course. Whew, I'm sorry that was so complicated, but uh, the sooner you get a real feel for this dynamic, uh, I think the more effective you'll be in allocating resources. So you, you've gone through that explanation a bunch of times. You've kind of fished around this Freakonomics and these other popular economics um, treatises uh, explaining some of these concepts. And you say, OK, I think I'm really comfortable with the theory. Now let's go to the numbers. Uh, so we open up uh, some of the statistical appendices to the budget, and we just get a general feel for the data. Uh, just use your eyes for now if, you're, if you really, really are averse to Excel. So we look at some of the numbers. We look at uh, projections for healthcare reform expenditure and the effects that those will have on, on the deficit. So just by looking at these numbers, we see that the president's strategy is to pay for healthcare reform with higher taxes. Okay. We see, well, uh, health care amenities increasing, and we see deficits actually increasing over this time period. And we kind of just eyeball this budget a little bit to look for interesting stuff. And, of course, debt service catches our eye because that's one of the three uh, main themes that we identified from our thesis statement. So we're curious, hmm, well, what will happen to debt service? So we look at debt service and we see, wow, that doesn't look good. It's, it's increasing a lot over this time period. Um, and so, so this is the general story that we think the data are telling us, which is kind of interesting because it seems contradictory to what we were reading in the text of the budget. Maybe it is, maybe we're not. We're not so sure yet because we've just started analyzing this budget. But we had this general impression that it was the president's strategy to pay for more health care services, um, increase taxes, which is fine. So far, that's what the story says. But what's happening to the debt? It's increasing a lot, even though we saw that the strategy was supposedly to reduce the debt over this time period. So we're thinking, hmm, well, something's not quite right here. Um, maybe we flip around uh, the budget. We say, well, um, we want to increase health care entitlements. What's, what's the president's glorious plan for other types of entitlements? Uh, we see this Department of Veterans Affairs. That's the thing that we flip to just mostly by accident. We were looking for entitlements, just looking for trends in data right now. And we see, well, you know, uh, Department of Veteran Affairs looks like they're expecting an increase in expenditure, at least in the near future. And we sit back and we say, hmm, okay, the strategies, higher taxes, higher debt, more health care, 
Mm, but it looks like what we're actually trying to do is we're trying to substitute various types of entitlements. We're trying to increase veterans affairs. We're going to have to draw resources away from somewhere, from the future. But it looks like overall the strategy is to increase entitlements overall. So that's our working hypothesis so far. So we've looked at some data. Um, we've had a bit of a think through some of the theories that we've learned in this course. And we have a couple of hypotheses. Uh, but of course, we're trying to use the cases in order to consolidate our understanding of the models and of the readings in the course. So we grab the textbook, we flip it open, and we look around to see if there's something that might help us understand this huge U.S. budget document and the trends that we've identified so far. Okay, so we open the textbook and we're relatively new to this whole budgeting thing. We, we don't know exactly how a budget's laid out. Um, there's some funny jargon that we're not used to. And we think, well, how can I understand what, what this budget document's actually telling me? So you go through the textbook and you read about how a budget's organized, how various types of revenue and expenditure are classified. And you, you look at the budget again and you say, hmm, okay, it, it all seems a bit clear to me. Now, how they, how they made the budget, how, uh, what discretionary expenditure is, etc. Um, and so, of course, then you go through the textbook and you look for things that are, that are interesting. Um, you remember that we were talking a bit about performance-based budgets. Uh, you look at the section on performance-based results-based budgeting, you look at the other side of your desk at the budget, you look back at this uh, description of performance-based budgeting, and then you say, hmm, well this is kind of uh, strange, you know, I mean we have this budget document, but I can't really see this whole results-oriented approach. I mean, yeah, it's true, in, in the, the, the chapters, there's these very broad, abstract descriptions, making America better and improving productivity. But from what I read from the textbook, there's a very tight kind of link between, look, we want to spend money on this, and this is what we're going to get. Uh, you open the, bud the, the federal budget, and you see something rather different. And so, of course, this leads you to start thinking, well, why is that? I mean, it, it's not that the, the people who made the U.S. budget didn't read the text Mike Sell's uh, book on fiscal administration. There's probably something else going on here. Okay, That's one thing that you think. The other thing that you think is that, well, okay, let's assume this is a performance-based budget, because it's probably true the government has policy objectives. What are the targets for the expenditure that I was looking at so far? Okay, what are the targets for debt reduction? Why do we want to engage in such debt reduction? And we think we, we step back a little bit because uh, we're critical scholars. We're not just um, bureaucrats. And we think, okay, well, we want to reduce the debt. The, one of the president's goals is to reduce the debt and um, increase amenity uh, from healthcare services. So we think, well, you know, maybe we have to reduce expenditure a little bit on public services today, but why are we doing that? And the answer might just be, it's a false economy. Maybe we're reducing expenditure today so that we have to spend much more in the future. 
I mean, maybe the, the optimal goal isn't to reduce expenditure so much now. It's to use this other strategy and try and grow our way out, at least in part, of uh, the large deficit spending that, that we're seeing at the time these recordings were made. Um, so we think, well, okay, we want to substitute out of some services into other services. It's clear we're going to have to pay for more health care later. Uh, we have aging populations. Uh, we have uh, very expensive diseases. I mean, as, as we go up the, the hierarchy of technical progress, the diseases that we're able to treat, they're going to become more expensive, more complicated. And so it could be that we're substituting out of doctors today in order to substitute into doctors tomorrow. Um, that's one possibility. I mean, the other possibility is that you say, okay, well, maybe this expenditure stuff has something to do with effectiveness rather than efficiency. I mean, maybe we're trying to spend more efficiently when what we should be worrying about is getting more cure for every dollar the budget spends. So the strategy then isn't to try and spend resources more uh, economically, but to spend them more productively. So you see from just this very basic overview glance of the budget, we've already identified uh, a bunch of key issues. We've identified uh, some pretty fancy economics theory stuff that we can evaluate numbers against. Uh, we've also had a chance to look at some of the readings and use that as a sounding board for trying to interpolate or question uh, the case and try and really grab some of the main possible uh, conclusions from the very limited data that we've seen so far. So we've had a first look at some of the main themes of the U.S. budget. And remember I said that it's your natural curiosity that's going to pull you forward in your analysis of the case. So we've, we've seen a trend in healthcare spending in the U.S. budget, and of course you're curious about this. Uh, you say, well, I see this trend in healthcare expenditure. Do I believe these trends? Because uh, remember, question everything. We're very critical throughout this course. Um, one of the main areas of I, of really understanding a budget is almost like a police station. You know, you really question question the heck out of it. So your natural curiosity leads you to look a bit more at some of the outlays uh, projected in healthcare. Uh, you see on this slide uh, some of the Congressional Budget Office estimates of the President's budget. And you say, huh, well, what does that tell me? Uh, you look at the numbers and you say, wow, that's, that's kind of numbery. Uh, it's very difficult for me to absorb all these numbers. So you spend five minutes typing uh, numbers into Excel and you produce these brilliant charts. Um, and that's why, again, I've been admonishing us to spend a little bit of time learning Excel because you see that the graph on the bottom is just so much easier to read and interpret than the numbers on the top of the slide. So we look at trends in discretionary spending, and we see, well, uh, discretionary spending is programmed to decrease a little bit until roughly 2012, and then increase ever so slightly. Uh, we have this curious trend in off-budget revenue, and you make a note to yourself, oh, well, what does off-budget mean? 
um, and then you decide that you'll look that up in the textbook a little bit later. And if you're still not satisfied by that answer, either you'll Google around a bit or you'll drop me a Skype message and say, well, you know, I saw this off-budget thing. I wonder what that's about. And we'd have an interesting mentoring session that uh, hopefully was useful to you somehow and will certainly be interesting to me. Uh, so anyway, you see these trends in the data and you see this uh, estimate of uh, healthcare costs expanding from six billion to roughly a hundred billion over the over the time projected by the numbers shown. And you think to yourself, well, does this hundred billion seem very realistic? Uh, these are Cong Congressional Budget Office uh, numbers, and my initial reading of this report is that they want to portray gloom and doom. I don't know why. I, I, I don't know that there's a Republican or Democratic Congress. Uh, I'm out of this whole situation. But just as a technocrat, I see that the CBO's report on the budget is much more dark and dim than the budget that I was just analyzing. So I'm trying to think, well, how realistic is this funny report that I'm looking at? And I see this number of about $100 billion, and immediately I'm very skeptical. Uh, and when I was producing these slides, uh, on, on the bottom of the slide, I, I initially typed $100 billion. That, that really looks too big. Okay? And so that was my, my hypothesis. To me, $100 billion looks like a lot of money. And I use the techniques that we've been learning from the class, because of course I don't just go with the first thing that I think. I do a little bit of analysis to make sure that my gut reaction is right. And so I think about the, the size of the American population, I think about the percent of the population that might require health care, and I think about the average cost of that health care. And what I found is that actually just this very, very rudimentary estimate was pretty close to what the CBO analyst came up with. And so I had to erase the, the first line that I wrote, 100 billion looks ridiculous, and I typed even back of envelope gets close to CBO's estimate. Okay, So throughout the course we've been having this, um, this debate, this uh, struggle about these estimates based on very coarse assumptions. And I think that as you keep doing this work, you'll find that your assumptions are pretty close to the actual data that you're coming up with in various government reports. Um, so I would encourage you to keep practicing your skills about assessing uh, the costs and benefits of particular programs only using theory and only using the tools that you've gleaned from the course. So we've looked at uh, some of the tools that we've learned from the course, market sizing, um, assessing whether budget estimates are realistic or not, and we realize, well, that's just part of what we in the course. Uh, of course, we want to try and confront that with other material that we've learned, and we remember this reading by Drazen, and he has some interesting models of political economy. You also remember that we were discussing uh, 
models of political economy in one of the lectures and one of the recitations. And so you think, well, okay, I saw this abstract model. I wonder if I can apply it to this concrete case of the U.S. budget that's sitting in front of me. And just with a blank paper, uh, no one's showed you how to do this analysis already, but you have a first stab at it, okay? And you think, well, let's think about the interests, the various interests in American society that might militate for uh, increased uh, expenditure on health care, and how might we pay for these entitlements in the future? Or we might think, uh, well, the debt's too large. How do we pay for debt reduction? Okay. In fact, the two you'll see that the two questions are uh, almost aspects of the same question because part of our part of the U.S. debt is being driven by spending on entitlements. So the two questions aren't really as dissimilar as it might seem at first glance. So we have to think, well, why is this deficit here? Why is it growing? And we remember this war of attrition model. And we, we remember that, well, there's probably some interests that are preventing a welfare-improving compromise in expenditure reduction, okay, and ultimately uh, debt reduction. And so we think, huh, war of attrition, what's that about? Well, we know that there's groups that are preventing um, uh, policy change, and we think, well, why might they be preventing this policy change? We uh, go on the internet and we look, we see, I wonder how, uh, how the U.S. government's spending its money, okay? In which various categories, which various expenditure categories account for various shares of the overall U.S. budget? Uh, we fish around for a little bit and we see this funny chart from the internet, uh, which you see on the bottom of the slide, Obama's 2012 budget proposal, how almost $4 trillion is spent. And we see spending on the two entitlements and we think, well, health is good, grandparents are good, we probably don't want to mess with that too much. Then we see this other thing, defense. And we say, huh, well, that reminds me of something. That reminds me of Georgia. I wonder if there's any links between um, some of the intuitions and models that we used in Georgia that we might be able to apply in the case of our analysis of the U.S. budget. And so we look at this uh, expenditure category for a while, and we start to think, well, you know, hmm, uh, generals will probably bear some of the burden of deficit reduction and ultimately debt reduction. So we think, well, they're probably against uh, these types of reforms. And our eyes shift back to health and human services, and we, we see, well, that's actually a huge box. I mean, okay, being healthy is good, but I really wonder if all those resources are being dedicated to being healthy. Then we stop and we think a while and we say, huh, well, doctors make a lot of money, and uh, insurance companies make a lot of money. And healthcare companies, they make a lot of money. They have lots of people that might be against a change which reduces overall expenditure in these budget categories. And so, again, we sit and think a little bit and we say, okay, well, what are two groups that are very likely to have an entrenched interest against budgetary reform along the lines the president is proposing? And we see, well, probably doctors and generals. 
Okay, those are two groups in this budget that might bear a disproportionate brunt of this cost of adjustment. So that tells us something interesting from the political economy side of our analysis. So of course our natural curiosity compels us to continue playing with some of the models that we've learned from this course and particularly some of the political economy analysis that I was uh, discussing in lecture, how that might be applied to this particular case. Okay, So in the last slide we saw various interests that might be opposed to reform and indirectly we also saw some interests that might be in favor of reform. Um, we look at this kind of block chart that we saw on the left on the last slide and you'll see the the chart reproduced on this slide on the left side of this slide okay and we see that education and labor are relatively small in terms of their proportion of overall spending in this budget relative to health care and defense spending and we look at that level of expenditure and maybe we remember other expenditures from other budgets we've looked at in this course or maybe maybe we don't maybe we look at those boxes and we tell ourselves hmm wow that looks kind of small I mean I don't know what they should be I, ha I haven't thought through the issues involved in the optimal amount of education spending or spending by the Department of Labor, but my initial hypothesis, my initial assumption is that that spending is very small. Okay, do not be afraid to make those hypotheses because that's how you get more comfortable with the budget by playing with the data and by playing with the various models. So you remember my model of uh, political economics. Uh, remember I was telling that you line everyone up along a broad uh, Broadway uh, Avenue and you assess the relative costs and benefits of a policy to each individual or each segment of that particular society. And we say, hmm, I wonder if we can do the same thing with the budget that we're looking at now. So you see on the, the right-hand side, the relatively large chart, it's a very simplistic attempt to reproduce the, the kind of analysis we were doing in class uh, as applied to the U.S. budget. And so basically what I've done here is I've assumed that we can divide uh, different groups of people, beneficiaries of public spending, by categories. Um, I've labeled Health 1, Health 2, and Health 3. And what, what I've done there is I've, I've assumed that we could break out different segments of the healthcare industry, okay, recipients of government spending on healthcare. And I've plotted uh, roughly the amount of budget that, that they receive, uh, knowing that some beneficiaries are going to be in a much more advantaged position than other beneficiaries. Okay, so those that are really benefiting from health care expenditure, they're probably benefiting a lot. And that's what this uh, health one segment tells us. Those are the group of people that are really benefiting a lot. We have then another segment, which is labeled health two. Uh, they're still benefiting by a lot, but not quite as much by this expenditure as this first segment, health one. Uh, similarly, we walk along uh, 
Broadway Avenue, like we were talking in class, we look at various segments of the population who are beneficiaries of this government expenditure, okay, as Social Security recipients were labeled uh, SS1, SS2, uh, Defense 1, Defense 2, okay, and we compare this against uh, blanket recipients for education spending and labor spending. And we have this hypothesis, well, what, what if we take just a little bit of uh, resources from the beneficiaries of healthcare spending and social security spending and reallocate that to uh, beneficiaries of uh, education spending and labor spending. Okay? And this chart simply describes that redistribution using the example from class. Okay, so in theory, it's possible to affect a Pareto improving redistribution among budget categories. You take a little sliver off from the biggest beneficiaries and just plop it onto those segments, those beneficiaries, which are receiving uh, money from the government in education labor. Of course, in this chart, I'm assuming that this redistribution is Pareto improving um, through decreasing returns to such expenditure. That might be a right supposition, it might be a wrong supposition, but the main idea is just to get you used to thinking about this model and trying to put numbers to the models in order to play with possible changes to budgets. Okay, so, so that's all this chart's really trying to do. But of course our curiosity doesn't end there. We look at the health, the American healthcare sector and we look at uh, social security spending, and we're trying to think, well, why are they overfunded? I mean, one answer, as we saw above, is that it's about politics, okay? You have uh, doctors and you have healthcare providers and retirement homes uh, putting their feet down stubbornly and saying, we're not going to give up any of our resources. And so that is one political economy explanation for this budget. Okay. Now, there's another explanation, of course, and that is simply related to the economics of supply and demand for the provision of these services. Um, and you see a, a very stylized explanation on the bottom. Um, let's think about the nature of the supply and demand uh, for health care and Social Security. Well, I mean, we, we think about the supply of these services and that... Uh, you know, as prices increase for these services, then uh, the amount of service provided increases. Now, let's think about the elasticity of demand. In other words, let's think about the way we demand these services. Um, and you see on the slide there's two possibilities. Okay, there is uh, completely inelastic demand and there's relatively elastic demand. Okay, now let's think what happens to incomes in these sectors and thus public expenditure on health and social security under each of these possible scenarios. Okay. First, let us assume that demand is perfectly inelastic for the for supply, the supply of health and social security services that are being given. Well, we can think about that perfectly inelastic uh, demand, uh, look, I, I need my health, I'm willing to pay an infinite amount of resources in order to be healthy. Okay, Highly inelastic demand. Now you remember from, from lectures that 
of course, in these inelastic segments of the market, we can draw as many resources as we want, basically. Okay? People are not going to change their consumption patterns heavily um, if they are consuming uh, a, a fixed amount of, uh, of a particular market segment. Uh, this, the, the, the graph here is slightly misleading for reasons which I won't go into, but the basic moral of the story is assume that within our country there is a fixed demand for health. Okay, we all want to be healthy. This is the amount that we want to be healthy by, and we're willing, and we have a income that can either go to spending on health or spending on everything else. Okay. Uh, hopefully that's that whole logic is relatively clear now. Now, what's going on? What's going on is that because we cons we want as much healthcare services uh, as possible, okay? Because we have a fixed level of demand for healthcare services, we are ready to spend as much as possible to achieve a particular healthcare objective. Okay, fixed level, a uh, fixed level of demand, which in theory goes all the way to uh, all the income that we earn. I mean, uh, if you're like me, you're willing to spend everything you earn just to make sure you're healthy. So of course, uh, the health, the healthcare and social security sectors, this is the maximum amount of resources they can draw from this particular society. So we look at expenditure on health and social security and we say, well, this might not be the result of politics. This might simply be the result of preferences. I mean, maybe the government's spending so much on these expenditure categories because they're simply reflecting what we want as consumers. Okay. Uh, our, de our demand is relatively inelastic. We're willing to spend as much as possible to be as healthy as possible. And you see that reflected in our budget. But then we, we sit back a minute and we, we think, well, uh, let's, let's think about uh, some social medicine systems. Let's think about uh, the UK's National Health Care Service. I mean, it's, n the, it's not a great analogy because they spend a lot of money on health care. Um, but let's imagine that the demand for health care is not perfectly inelastic and fixed. Uh, let's imagine that we as individuals, and particularly we as societies, we do trade off expenditure on health versus other things. And we can imagine that as the cost of health care rises, we prefer to substitute out of health care in, and into other uh, uh, consuming other things. Uh, think about uh, cosmetic surgeries, think about uh, uh, medical conditions which are unpleasant but they're not extremely annoying. I have lots of colleagues in the UK that, that have this type of situation where they have uh, health situations where it's unpleasant but the, in general the, the NHS administrators and their general practitioner has decided that the resources spent on curing this would deprive someone else of very needed life-saving operations or other uh, healthcare services. So if that's the case, we can imagine a downward sloping demand for, uh, for health and uh, retirement uh, hospices, things of this nature. 
so it's not obvious then that we want to spend as much as possible on healthcare. It could entirely be that uh, we have this uh, perception uh, that we're willing to spend as much as possible on health when that's not actually the trade-off that we're facing. I mean, maybe we don't have to spend $200, 300 for an, hour, uh, an hour's doctor visit, uh, which we certainly don't spend if we're abroad. Maybe uh, the pricing of our, our health care re reflects this um, misperception about our own elasticity of demand for health care, which we don't see in other countries. Now, why did I go into this big, long, complicated discussion? And the answer is, is that we see lots of spending on health and Social Security, basically benefits for when we reach old age. And the, 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 the underlying story is that, well, um, that simply reflects our own natural demand for the consumption of these goods and services. But that very much depends on whether... Uh, our demand is elastic or inelastic for these services. And we cannot assume that we have a high, highly inelastic demand for um, health care and for uh, retirement services. Okay? So we look at this budget, we make an assumption about our preferences that might not at all be true. Okay? If that assumption is true, then these huge boxes that you see um, uh, reflecting expenditure in various categories, it reflects our own preferences. If our assumption is not true, then it reflects market power, it reflects uh, other possible market distortions which policy can affect. Okay? So the moral of this story that I'm trying to sell you is that we look at the data, we look at these funny boxes that reflect ex the proportion of expenditure in various categories, and we have to assess, is that spending too much or is it not enough? And the answer, of course, is it depends on what model we use, and it depends on the assumptions that we bring to that particular model. Whew, wow, that was kind of rough. Okay, you see from the our description of the budget um, that we have a trend in the data and that our natural curiosity leads us to various hypotheses in an attempt to explain those data. Of course you might not be as curious as I am and you might not be as technical in terms of, of the economic analysis that you use. Um, certainly I'm not um, expecting you to do a very complicated uh, economic analysis involving the elasticity of demand for various services. Um, but I, I do want to show how natural curiosity leads you down a certain path as you try and analyze the various cases from this class. Now, let's move on to Scotland. Uh, we've looked at two countries so far. We've looked at Georgia and we've looked at the US. Um, we have this third country uh, Scotland, and we have a question in our syllabus related to uh, capital investment, capital spending uh, from the Scottish budget. And we want to know if we can say anything interesting about what was happening in Scotland at that time. Uh, 
so in the readings you see this table which is shown on the slide and as we were saying many times before numbers are very difficult to interpret just if you look at numbers so using our skills from Excel we've decided to plot these numbers and look at uh, changing priorities in each area uh, hopefully these are rates of change and not uh, overall levels because as we went through this very long and um, theoretical discussion previously we want to look at rates of change they tell us much more about how we should adjust our, our uh, government expenditure uh, those rates of change tell us much more than simply looking at levels so we see uh, various uh, capital expenditure from the Scottish government budget in 2009 and there are two trends in these data that look rather interesting to me. Uh, we see relatively constant spending on transport and we see uh, variable spending on employment policies and so it's that analysis of extremes that attracts my attention. Uh, as far as the graph you're looking at is concerned uh, the graph itself shows rates of change and it is the legend that shows overall levels of spending because again we want to make sure that we're not looking at some relatively insignificant budget item that's showing high variability simply because of the base that we're looking at. Uh, again you remember from class we were talking about uh, looking at a very small economy, uh, let's say three chicken economy. Okay, there's three chickens in the economy. If one of the chicken has a, a baby, you're going to see a 25% uh, growth rate in that chicken economy. Okay, um, so that's a very simple way of showing you that when we're looking at at any particular uh, economic phenomenon, budgets, uh, growth rates of economy, size matters when we're interested in looking at rates of growth. And so that's why I've shown in the legend the absolute level of spending in these various areas. Now you remember from the last slide uh, there were changes in the, the rates of change. In other words there was volatility in the lines we were looking at on the previous graph in three areas which I uh, labeled. Uh, transport which was relatively constant, a change in employment policy up and down and we saw this sudden increase in uh, spending in science okay and for me that was the most interesting thing um, partly because I'm interested in science uh, if for no other reason uh, remembering that cases are mostly a chance for me to try and practice the models and the various material that we've been learning in the course so I'm interested in understanding why capital expenditure might have risen in science and uh, I don't want to fish around the internet for hours and hours and hours right now. Um, as I've been repeating throughout this lecture, first we want to use our models and theory to come up with hypotheses that then guide us as we collect information and try and understand the particular sector that we're researching more fully. So, looking at the, the slide in front of you, um, it's an attempt to model or try and explain why uh, the Scots might have been investing more in uh, capital underlying uh, science, scientific discovery, invention, etc. Uh, 
of course, I, I can't know exactly why this expenditure rose, so I try and think, well, what might the Scottish government have been trying to do at this time? Uh, I see that that uh, spending on uh, capital related to science has risen, and I'm trying to think, well, what might have they been trying to do with that increased expenditure? So you see in front of you a very simple model. Uh, money goes to universities, and that money in turn, it, it can do a couple of things. Okay, um, Scottish government might have wanted to try and foster new patentable discoveries. Okay, Bi biology, technology, biotechnology. Uh, that's one possibility. And I remember from my days in the UK, the 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 UK government had a very high emphasis on. Uh, patentable discoveries, uh, because these this is the type of expenditure that could basically pay for itself. Uh, so that's one possibility. Uh, the second possibility is that they they wanted to use research, generate research, or adapt existing research in order to advise industry. Okay, to improve the product the productivity of Scottish industry. That's another possibility. Of course, uh, there's many other possibilities. They wanted to uh, teach new scientists, uh, etc. But remember, we said that a model's goal is to try and simplify a very complicated thing. So if we sit down and if we list all the possibilities and have 200 squares like you see in front of you, the model becomes just as complex as reality, and we haven't really achieved anything. So what we're trying to do then with this model is think, well, what was this money probably destined for, and did the Scottish authorities spend too much or too little? And what what did they get for their pound? Okay. Um, continuing with what we've learned from the course, we are talking about uh, expected costs and expected benefits. Okay. Uh, the probabilities of uh, expenditure leading to good things, which you see on this chart. Um, by P, P sub G, okay, that's basically the probability that spending on a new discovery leads to some patentable outcome. Okay, the probability of that happening multiplied by the value of that good thing happening. Remember, of course, for our calculations, we can't just say, oh, a jolly good thing happened, it's patentable, 30% um, probability times a very, very smiley face. Um, it, it doesn't help us. So what we have to do instead is we have to assign an economic value to the patents, potential patents that might be resulting from these new discoveries. Uh, similarly, uh, we think about using research to advise industry, and we know, well, we want to invest in good things, but we probably also want to avoid bad things. It's just a very logical, simplistic model of the world. So again, you see on this slide that we have investments that lead to decreased probabilities of bad things happening, which is denoted by a little P sub B, B is bad. And uh, of course, we have to think about the value of the bad things that we're avoiding. Okay. Now be very careful here because throughout this course we've been talking about marginal change. So what we're really interested in in this model is the change in the probability of us doing good things, and it is the marginal value of those good things. Okay, If we're putting 5,000 quid more into uh, scientific research, 
we want to know for that marginal change, which is the 5,000 quid, what is the marginal change in the probability, and what is the marginal extra value of the good things we're getting or the bad things avoided. Okay, So it's going to be somewhat confusing as you start your career thinking about public, uh, public sector budgeting to differentiate levels from changes. So that's why I'm being so pedantic about drawing your attention to marginal change. So you've, um, you've created this model, you've looked at the Scottish budget, and um, you're kind of proud of yourself. You say, yes, I've really incorporated uh, the material from the course. And then you remember this from the readings, this stuff about performance-based budgeting. And you tell yourself, oh, well, wait a minute. We've looked at capital expenditure from the Scottish budget. Um, I've made a model to try and explain uh, the uh, trends in the data, but what is it that I'm actually looking at? I mean, remember that uh, in theory the Scottish government has changed expenditure on capital goods supporting scientific discovery for some objective, some social objective. Uh, some Scottish politician has stood up in Glasgow or Edinburgh or wherever in Scotland and said, look, this is what we want to do to build a better Scotland. And so you say, well, I, I can't very well continue my analysis without either uh, finding what Scottish authorities are trying to do or making some kind of supposition about what they're trying to do. Okay, So, of course, you have a logical mind and you say, well, first let's spend no more than 60 seconds uh, and see if we can find what they're trying to do. And then if that fails, you'll try and determine what they're trying to do based on flipping through the budget or making a reasonable set of assumptions. I mean, in theory, they're not all sitting around plotting the overthrow of Europe with their scientific discoveries. So you can make particular assumptions about the welfare improving outcomes that politicians are likely seeking. Okay. Um, but fortunately, as you see in the slide in front of you, we don't have to sit around and make suppositions about what Scottish politicians want to do with their ex capital expenditure in science. Instead, we found this website, uh, Building a Better Scotland, and it shows uh, a couple of objectives. And you see I've circled in Google what I typed, Science Scotland Spending. Um, I'm not going to spend much time trying to find this information because remember we said that if you spend lots of time checking every single thing in your analysis, you'll never finish your analysis. Uh, you'll be 70 years old before you finish the first case study. So that's why we make these simplifying assumptions and we move quickly through our analysis. So you see in front of you uh, several objectives. Uh, related to performance-based budgeting, uh, and it's actually related to the spending proposals, as you see on the top, so, so you know you're barking up the right tree. Uh, you see objective one, uh, increase business investment in research and development compared to OECD competitors. Uh, two, improve uh, productivity levels in Scottish industry. And you stop reading and you sit back and you say, huh, well, that's pretty encouraging that I've started to make this model and thinking in the way the rest of the other policymakers are thinking. I mean, I was thinking, well, how do I assess their decision? 
you go to this web page and you see that, well, the way that you assess it is probably the way other people assess it, which is, uh, trust me from my experience, a very good thing. I mean, the last thing you want to, to do is uh, uh, suggest methods that are not uh, commonly accepted, because either that means you're such a genius no one will like you, or much more likely that you haven't really internalized the way that your discipline tackles problems. Okay, And throughout various aspects of public service provision, we tend to think about a risk-based approach to service provision, uh, assessing probabilities and assessing the expected value of the uh, capital and current investment that we're making, for example. Okay, So this, this your model tells you that you, in comparison with the objectives you see in front of you now, it tells you that you, your intuitions are probably forming correctly and that you're getting out of the course what you should be getting. Okay, So in this way, as you see on the bottom of the slide, it says learn to trust your intuitions. Um, so many times in my career in law enforcement, uh, I haven't necessarily had a customs educa uh, education in customs, uh, inspecting goods, or conducting audits. Um, but because I had a relatively good education in economics and in statistics, uh, it's the same methods that we use from our academic endeavors that you would very well expect to see used in the real world. And if that's at variance, with what you see in the real world, then you should be concerned. But so far, so good. So we return to our question. Has the Scottish government allocated enough resources to capital investment in scientific endeavor in Scotland? Okay. And we use our theory in order to assess this. Remember we talked about the marginal change in the probability of something good happening from that expenditure, uh, the P sub G. Okay, we looked at the value of the of good things happening, and we're balancing that against the probability of the change in the probability of bad stuff happening, and the change in the value of that bad stuff happening. Okay, um, the the formula you see before you change in government spending uh, equals to the probability of good and the value. Uh, the formula is slightly misleading because I've defined P and V as changes already. I mean, when I type the formula, I was assuming that what we were talking about was a change in the probability of something good happening. So if you want to be dogmatic, of course, it would be delta G equals delta P delta V. Um, I know this is sounding very pedantic. But take it from me that you're looking at changes in expected values in order to, to assess the change in the budgetary allocation. Okay, If you grab that, then all of this stuff about deltas and formulas will seem relatively simple to you. Okay, um, Again, remember I was telling that a picture is worth a thousand words, so instead of giving you some kind of crazy balance sheet showing different probabilities and different expected values, I've put it on a, a easy-to-read bar chart. So you see in front of you um, expected changes in marginal costs of expenditure, uh, the, the value of the direct, of direct benefits accruing from the uh, capital expenditure, and 
remember we're talking about things like machines and uh, capital goods, okay, because it's the capital part of the budget that we're interested in. And on the chart, this risk-adjusted risk thing that you see, um, that is the, the weighting or the scaling of this value by the probability of us getting the results that we want to get from our expenditure, okay? Um, so we look at the expected or risk-adjusted value of good stuff happening from our expenditure. We compare that to the risk-adjusted value of the bad stuff that we have avoided, okay? We add those two together, of course. Um, those are the red little bars that you see in front of you, okay? And then we subtract that from the change in expenditure uh, for scientific uh, capital goods in science, okay? So all we're doing is we are uh, looking at the overall profit for spending in science uh, in this particular area of capital, okay? Uh, and very practically for this calculation, we have simply subtracted risk okay, the risk-adjusted value of good stuff happening, plus risk-adjusted value of the bad stuff we've avoided, we subtracted all that from the amount of resources we've had to put in order to get those nice things from that spending. And what we see, the very last bar in this bar chart, is a negative net marginal benefit for this expenditure. So from this very rudimentary analysis of capital expenditure in science, in the Scottish budget, for the case that we're looking at, um, we can assume that the Scots have overspent. Okay, that's um, a very simple conclusion from these data. Uh, one thing I would like to flag already is that this graph only looks at this, this tiny window, this four-year period that the case gave us. And hopefully, because your critical skills are starting to develop much more acutely, you realize that we've made a conclusion, but then you're always fishing around for conditions where that might not be true, or critiques of this analysis. Um, one bad critique is, well, you know, uh, putting probabilities, it's all so uncertain, or, uh, you know, there's lies, damn lies and statistics. I mean, these types of critiques are not very useful to anybody. Uh, I, uh, they're, they're jokes, they're kind of fun, but you, you really want to be incisive in terms of your critiques and question, well, what about the methods that we're using might change the overall conclusions we've arrived at? I mean, is looking at a four-year time period for capital investment, is it uh, acceptable or is it not acceptable? And as we'll see a couple of slides later, this uh, particular type of analysis has several critiques. Let's move on a bit and discuss uh, less substance and more form. Uh, throughout the course, I've been weighting equally the substance of our analysis as well as the way that we present it. Um, from the class, I've I've really uh, sensed this agreement with me that the, the way we present things is equally as important in the working world as the substance of what we present. 
Um, of course, if we if we cannot present arguments simply and easily, no politician is going to take the time to scratch their head and go through all of these com wondrous and complicated aspects of our analysis. So that's why I've been pushing you very hard to try and learn uh, Excel and try and present your arguments in Excel. Because uh, even I, I've noticed that when I come home from a long day and I'm looking at cases, and uh, there's piles and piles of numbers and, and written description, I kind of sigh and, uh, all right, I'll look at it later. Um, but if I see a, a simple graph that says, look, this is the summary of the data, this is the conclusion that you want, like a mallet over the head, and I say, yeah, okay, it's going to take me uh, two or three minutes to read this. I, I have a brain of my own. I can kind of assess some of the background deductions the author's making. I don't have to be led step by step, point by point. Instead, you can provide things like this Excel chart you see in front of you, and if I have questions or if I'm a critical mind like all of our bosses are or will be, then they can kind of work through some of the, the assumptions that we've made from this summary presentation. So let me give a couple of uh, remarks about the Excel charts that you'll be making in the course, hopefully. Uh, remember in one of the handouts, I said that there's two, two types of titles uh, that are in popular use when we're presenting uh, financial data in general. Okay. Uh, there's the scientific type of uh, graph that would say something like, um, uh, let's say, a comparison of expected costs and benefits of the Scottish budget from 2000X to 2000X, uh, bracket reported in millions of uh, pounds sterling and bracket. Okay. Uh, the scientific title to a graph, it, it, it's uh, much more descriptive. It explains who, what, where, when, why. Uh, these are often the, the types of graphs you see full-on PhD economists uh, present to each other. Okay, that way um, they can make sure that the data they're looking at, they're comprehensive, they're scientifically valid, uh, etc. Okay, and if this were a piece of science, that's the kind of graph that I would probably prefer to see. But if it's a policy brief, if, if it's something that we want to use to uh, inform people who don't have PhDs or don't have uh, fancy master's degrees, <laughs> sorry, uh, then you might want to use what we know as a management title or an action title. Okay, and in that management title, it gives the overall conclusion of the of the picture of the graph. So that way the reader can see right at the beginning what your conclusion from those data are. Um, it's a bit leading, of course, but that's the whole purpose of policy analysis, is that we come to a conclusion and we want to share that conclusion with others. We don't want our graphs to be like murder mysteries, where we save the exciting conclusion for the end. Okay, we want to put right at the beginning. Well, boom, Scotland might have spent too much on science. And so that way, when we look at these, these bars, maybe we can't understand everything in this graph because we're not used to reading these graphs, or maybe because uh, we didn't quite label everything like we should have. I, I mean, we're only human. Sometimes we forgot to put a label where we, where we needed to put a label. But the reader can see from the title, 
it's our supposition that Scotland spent too much on science. And so even if that last bar doesn't have a title, net marginal benefit, that thing's negative, and we can deduce, okay, well, the author probably thinks there's a negative marginal benefit because he's talking about all these other risk-adjusted things, and he's talking about a, uh, a marginal cost. Marginal cost, I don't know what that comes from. Maybe it comes from the budget because, uh, of course, the reader, he's going to be using his brain a little bit. Okay, a uh, couple of technical things about the charts you make. Uh, we're in this wonderful era where we can use color almost costlessly. Uh, there's still lots of habit from the battle days of people putting things in black and white. Uh, even if you've looked at some of my academic publishings or my policy briefs, uh, they're all in color. Just if you have a stack of papers on your desk, something's in color and something's not, your eye's going to be attracted to it. Uh, use our animal instincts to your advantage. Um, what else? Uh, you'll see the axes are labeled. Oh, please always label your axes. I remember my professors pulling their hair out, uh, admonishing us to do this, and so now I pass this unks to a new generation. And finally, uh, make sure and provide a source for your data and other um, references. Uh, remember that it's still plagiarism if you don't cite. Uh, I mean, I have to admit, even I'm a bit sloppy about citing and providing sources for data, particularly when it's an internal document. I mean, you know only one other person is going to read this document, and you have a five-minute deadline, and so you just say, well, forget it. I'm going to make this... Uh, chart as easy as possible. Still put a source and a reference because you never know where that, that chart's going to end up. And it's, it's an impossible uh, argument to, to win. I mean, there's, you have some bureaucratic competitor who wants to get rid of you. He, this falls into his hands. He goes and says, well, you know, uh, he's an evil guy. He's not providing sources. He could be doing all kinds of nasty things. And it's a very difficult uh, offense to diffuse. So trust me, uh, not that it's happened to me, of course, <laughs> thankfully, um, but take my advice and always reference and source your charts. And of course, um, no lecture would be complete without a final note about using the readings from the course. Uh, you'll see in front of you um, several of the charts that we've produced from the case analysis so far. And many of you will still be wondering, how do we use the textbook and how do we use the readings in our case analysis? Um, you've heard me tell it a couple of times, but of course you have to see it in action several more times before this way of working becomes comfortable to you. I mean, we're all used to the way of learning where they give us the textbook reading, we go through it page by page, we say, okay, now I understand, and then we go off to apply the material. Um, and it's very difficult for adults to learn in this way. So in this course, we flipped this on its head. We said, here's the case. Now go to this corpus of knowledge that we've accumulated as scholars and practitioners and see what will, what will help you in your analysis. Um, and I'm not telling that you rely only on that. Uh, that's that's one of the benefits of the Socratic method is that through asking questions in class instead of lecturing to you, I can assess how well you've been fishing through the material 
in order to grab the material you need in order to analyze the case. Okay, so I see that as one of the main advantages to having a professor at your level of, of education. It's not me transferring uh, the course material to you. Instead, it's someone who can act as a checker, uh, a mentor, someone who can correct errors as you walk on this road to teaching yourself. Because hopefully by now, um, you're teaching yourself, you're not having other people teach you. So, let's continue with our discussion about using the readings. Um, in this week, we've talked about capital investment, capital budgeting. Uh, we've looked at a case from Scotland, and uh, in the textbook, you might, you've seen a bunch of stuff about capital budgeting. Uh, you might have seen table 6.1 from Mike Sell, and he says, well, you know, in this table, here's some selected questions you have to ask about a capital budget request. Uh, what evidence is given of the need for the project and what happens if the project's not funded? Uh, what are the benefits that are claimed for the project, etc.? And the, the table, it's almost floating in space. Uh, there, there's a bunch of description and then here's this uh, tool, if you will, that you're supposed to cut out, put in your wallet, and pull out next time you're involved in the capital budgeting exercise. And you say, well, that's that's not very helpful. I mean, how can I answer a question, what evidence is given for the need of the project? Mm, there's a couple of questions at the end of the chapter, that's true, to get me thinking about the material. Um, but if you're like me, you kind of look at those questions at the end of the chapter and you skim through them and, and you think, well, I mean, my current job isn't about fiscal administration. Um, the the questions aren't mandatory. I don't have to answer them for for grade. Your eyes kind of gloss over, and you look at your iPad, and you say, "Well, that looks much more interesting." Okay, you're like any normal human being. Um, but with the case uh, approach, instead, Table Six One becomes immediately relevant to you. Uh, you see these trends in capital investment from Scotland. Uh, you see this uh, increase in science in uh, expended capital expenditure for science. You see this relatively constant um, capital expenditure in transport. And then you go immediately to Table Six One and you start to ask it questions. Um, you see this question, well, what evidence is given for the need of the project? And you look at uh, increase in scientific expenditure, and you start to ask your own questions that your own natural curiosity impels you to. Well, what possible evidence could Scottish administrators have given for a need uh, for increased scientific expenditure? I mean, I don't know of any nuclear uh, accidents that happened there recently. Um, I mean, maybe I saw the movie Train Spotting and I have this general feeling that there's a malaise, but that's not really evidence. Um, so something must have happened, and the case tells me something about the questions Mike sells trying to sell me. Okay, I have this textbook that's, that tells me, well, these are the questions I have to ask myself as a, prof as a professional fiscal administrator. I've tried it in the Scottish case and it didn't work for me. Maybe I can make my, my own questions which will be more useful. Because uh, at the end of the day, guys like me and guys like Mike Sell and textbook writers, that's all that we can do. We can't give you the definitive questions. All we can do is give you a base, examples, such that you will form your own questions. 
and everyone will have their own questions as they go throughout their own career. Okay, so the wrong mindset is to look at the material from the textbook and say, well, that is the expert's approach. That is the toolkit that I must use. Um, at the end of the day, the toolkit you must use is the toolkit that you will make for yourself. Okay, so in that way, this is uh, active reading. You're always thinking instead of reading. Uh, like I was telling you at the beginning of the course, you'll only want to spend about 10% of your time reading and about 60% of your time staring at blank sheets of paper, okay, staring in silence or staring with music on and thinking, letting questions impel you, move you forward. Uh, so that's one example. Uh, let, let's continue with other examples from the reading for this week. Um, you're flipping through chapter 6 and you see on page 258 this whole description about accounting for time, discounting and compounding. Uh, you read this description, okay, the costs and benefits of most public projects, blah, 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 and it talks a little bit about discounting, okay? And normally you would, you would look up and you would say, well, that was interesting, I hope to use it someday. But of course you're practicing your active reading. And in this case, you're re you just read a description about discounting and compounding. You think, well, how can I jam this into the case that we're just looking at? Mm, Scotland. Okay, well, we know that we have to discount any possible gains that accrue to us from capital investment. Okay, um, I avert a disaster 20 years from now. What is What am I willing to pay today in order to avert that crisis 20 years from now. And please, God is my witness, I hope none of you are telling, I would pay everything to avoid that crisis, okay? Because um, we know that in a society, in public, um, public finance, you don't want to pay everything. You want to allocate resources efficiently given the scarcity of resources. And so we think, well, how much are we willing to pay for that benefit 20 years from now? And the answer is, we would take the discounted value of that benefit into today. And that is the amount of money that we are willing to pay today in order to get this benefit, this risk-adjusted benefit sometime in the future. Okay, So you're taking the concepts from the reading and you're playing with them and you're trying to blend in the other theories and ideas that you've been getting from the course. Okay, So in this way you're playing, uh, just as it says on this slide, and through this playing with the material you see that one of my underlying assumptions from the slide two slides ago was wrong. Okay, um, In that slide I was trying to sell you a story about Scottish uh, investment in science and I told you, well, according to this analysis, the marginal costs exceed the marginal benefits. And that's true for the four-year time period I was looking at. But we know that four years is too limited a time for capital investment. I mean, the whole point of capital investment is long-term, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. Uh, so in some ways, by definition, any exercise that looks at capital, uh, capital investment on a short-term scale is philosophically, it's just inherently flawed. Okay, so always look to deeper principles instead of trying to look for these more fancy techniques which might make you look smarter than the next guy. 
Um, finally, um, in the textbook, you see a description of cost-benefit analysis. Uh, because society cannot afford to waste its scarce resources, blah, 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 page 263. And you read that description. See, in the textbook, that's the first time you've seen this description, uh, cost-benefit analysis. Most of you have probably already seen this in your career. Um, some more concretely than others. If you're like me, cost-benefit analysis, I mean kind of real man's cost-benefit analysis hasn't been a daily feature of your working life. Uh, the, the kinds of techniques suggested in the textbook, that's not something you think about each day. Uh, but because we've already seen the ins and outs of cost-benefit analysis in some of the cases that we've looked at, by the time you go to the textbook, you're not trying to absorb it for the first time. It's not something new. It's not like, all right, let me try and understand this in theory, and then I'll go out and try and apply it. Instead, you've tried to apply it several times. You might have made some mistakes, and therefore, when you're reading the example in the textbook, the textbook's telling you, uh, do that. Oops, I didn't do that last time. Uh, I won't make that mistake again. Uh, the textbook's telling you, well, certainly don't do that. And you said, well, yep, already, already done that, been there. And it's through this process of um, stumbling uh, in recitation. You might have seen reference to the term tâtonnement. Uh, you're feeling or groping your way to the right answer. Through this groping, your mind is much more likely to retain this material 10 or 20 years later than if you just read it and try and file it like in some kind of mental filing cabinet. Um, so trust me, by doing case cases and then questioning the text, you'll find uh, much higher retention rates than if you try and do it the conventional way. So, fine. Where do we go from here? Uh, you've seen me do uh, three case studies, and when I say do case studies, um, I, I mean bring up possible topics for a case study. Because remember that each case is extremely complicated, and what you'll see is important is likely to be different than what I'll see is important, only because of our different backgrounds. Um, it's impossible to say, well, I'm a bigger expert than you are, and therefore my case study is more definitive. Okay? Uh, they're only samples to get you thinking about how to answer the questions from the syllabus using your own voice, using um, practicing the various models and vocabulary that we've been covering in the course. Uh, for the first four weeks, we've been covering these very basic skills, market sizing, uh, cost estimation, benefit estimation, uh, creating uh, slides and graphs in Excel, uh, uh, putting together PowerPoint slides, again remembering that a professional set of PowerPoint slides could do more for your career than a very vigorous and in-depth analysis uh, written in text form on a policy brief. Okay, um, We've seen examples of how various cases, how they apply to each other. We've seen how the police in El Paso relate to Scottish science. We've seen how um, risk-adjusted values from one case, how the intuitions from one case help us think about problems in a, another case. Um, the, the expected value of crime in El Paso 
those tools can be used the same way for thinking about the expected value of scientific discoveries in Glasgow. Okay, uh, We've thought about how to identify thesis statements. We've thought about how to use thesis statements in our own policy, in policy analyses. Um, we've thought about using models to frame case questions. And uh, very importantly to me, we've seen how to use Excel to show data. Um, I've shown uh, how to use the active reading approach, how to question very deeply the readings that you've been given in order to help you tackle the cases. In the next weeks, it's just more of the same. Uh, it's like the old, the old joke that all of you know. A young man's walking to Carnegie Hall. He sees a grandmother and he says, oh, dear grandmother, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? The grandmother looks at him and says, ah, Sonny, practice, practice, practice. Okay, so doing cases and understanding the intuitions from uh, financial management and budgeting, it's the same thing. Uh, you can't just read and say, okay, I've read the textbook, I know how to do it. You got to go through each case, you've got to struggle, and you're going to revisit a case four weeks later and find a completely opposite conclusion. Uh, that's completely normal. Uh, but, and, and that's actually quite valid as well. It simply means that you're learning new tools, new principles that you're applying to the same question. Um, the last slide slightly philosophical, so uh, I'll share another philosophical joke or musing with you. Um, it's by the explorer Vasco da Gama, I think, and he told us not to see a new world with the same eyes, but to see the same world with new eyes. So in the same way, you'll be looking at the cases again and again, seeing those same cases with the new eyes of new theories and new practices that you've seen from other cases. Uh, so keep practicing, keep playing with the theories and the materials that you've learned. And uh, the way I've designed the course, I've, ex I've designed my role to be more of a mentor than a lecturer. Uh, I don't teach you the material. Instead, I error correct to the extent that I'm able, of course, um, to, to point out uh, flaws that I see that maybe I've made before in my career or uh, questions for you to look at. Uh, but I can't do that unless you approach me. Um, so I'm not here simply, uh, does anyone have questions to answer questions? Instead, my most effective role is to struggle with you, is Socratic method, is to question, push, prod. And through that conf confrontational process, uh, I think both of us will learn a lot in terms of tackling these types of cases.